Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Ever notice how our minds like to take shortcuts? We hear new information and instantly send it through the filter of our experience and understanding. Someone says the word dragon, our minds quickly throw up images of whatever we've known dragons to look like. Maybe it's a cheerfully illustrated one from a favorite childhood book, or maybe it's huge and scaly and breathing fire like the ones from movies we watch as adults. Say the word dragon to a group of people, and there's a good chance the dragon who pops up in everyone's mind is going to look different. You might be wondering why I'm talking about dragons, and if for some reason today's episode is actually about Game of Thrones rather than grief. Not that grief isn't part of every episode of that series, but that's not why I'm talking about dragons. What if you were to hear... He died of a drug overdose. What images and ideas would jump to your mind? Would you think of someone who struggled with addiction, spending time in and out of a treatment program? Would you imagine someone old, young, or somewhere in between? Would you think of someone who got addicted to opiates after an injury? It might be a combination of all of these stories and more. Stories and images are what our minds do, pretty much automatically, to help us make sense of the world. Stories help us to know when to run for safety and when to reach out for a hug. These stories also come with a lot of assumptions. And when it comes to grief, these stories and their assumptions can lead to a lot of misunderstanding and disconnection. In the summer of 2016, Marie and Jonathan were newly married and living in Brooklyn. They were doing all the things that newly married people in their 30s do, working, figuring out how to live with one another, and planning for the future. One day in August, Marie flew back to New York City from a trip and found that Jonathan wasn't waiting for her at the airport. Thinking it was a continuation of a conflict they'd had, she spent the night at her mom's house and then headed to their apartment in the morning. She walked into their apartment and found Jonathan, who had died from a drug overdose. The thing is, though, Marie didn't know it was an overdose in that moment because drugs weren't part of the life that they shared. In the next few days, weeks, and months, she would discover information about Jonathan and his story that didn't fit with what she knew to be true about him and their relationship. Marie would also encounter just how painful it can be when people make assumptions about someone in their life based just on how they died. Jonathan's death propelled Marie into a new way of understanding herself, her relationship, and what she wanted and needed to do in her life. Marie, thank you so much for being on Grief Out Loud today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You and Jonathan knew each other in high school, right? Yes. And, but you didn't start dating until a lot later in life. Yeah. What was your romance like? It was pretty magical. We knew each other from when we were 15. I knew him. He may not have known me because he was a little bit cooler than I was. Um, but I do remember vividly walking down the hallway and I would smile at him because that is like what I do. I'm just like this big smiley person and him conveying that smile back to me and feeling like this incredible connection to this person and not really knowing why. Through our course of our 
friendship building, we would come in, in and out of each other's lives. He would randomly call me and I would see the 631 number come up on my phone and be like, who is this? And pick it up and it was him and I was so excited to hear from him and at the same time confused that he still thought about me after so many years. I remember this one night vividly. Um, I was out with a bunch of friends and I'm dancing backwards and I bump into somebody and we both turn around and, and it was Jonathan and I haven't seen him in a couple of years and ended up dancing the entire night, having a blast and then not seeing each other for three or four years. That went on for a while um, until he was really persistent and basically was like, you're in Brooklyn, I live in Brooklyn, we're hanging out. Part of me was like super scared to see him because I knew that I'd fall in love with him. I just knew it. And I was at this point in my life where my career was everything. I didn't want anything to sidetrack me. I didn't really want to get married. I didn't want to have kids. So I was like, uh uh, I can't lose track. I need to stay focused and stay on the straight and narrow. He was not part of the plan. One night I happened to be in his neighborhood and I said, What the heck? Let me call him and see if he'll hang out. Um, I think I'm ready to see him. You know, I'm prepared. Ended up meeting up and it was it. So yeah, our, we were incredibly smitten for one another. There would be comments from people around us being like, can you guys stop? Really cheesy, magical, um, stay up all night and just talk about like our dreams and aspirations. And we had so many, you know, we had so many goals, so many things that we really wanted to do together. And we, you know, cry about it and that was the first time I think I, I ever felt truly loved by someone who wasn't a family member or a friend. So um, it was pretty special. And in all that deep sharing and getting to know one another and just like kind of soul bearing, mm-hmm. what did Jonathan share with you about his past struggles with addiction? He was completely and utterly honest. The evening after we hung out at the bar... He called me the following day and was just like, I need to tell you everything. You've seen me in and out of each other's lives for the last 10 years, and we've talked here and there, but I don't think you really know the whole story. And I said, oh, my goodness, I know. Where were you? Where have you been? Like, what what have you been up to? So he shared a lot of details of his past relationship, work stuff, um, and then he was pretty open and honest about how he struggled with addiction, and it took him having to remove himself out of Long Island and separating himself from all of his friends um, to clean up, and he didn't have to go to rehab because he, he was a strong man, and he knew he wanted to get clean, and he put himself in a hotel, and he got himself clean, and his father came and helped him. He had this um, unique relationship with his father, um, but that he was good now, he never wants to go down that road ever again. And then asked me at the end of it, after he like bared his soul and was like, do you still want to go out on a date with me? I was like, of course. Thank you for sharing. I feel so lucky that you were, you felt comfortable enough to share that part of your life with me. And yes, I absolutely want to go out on a date with you. I respect his ability to open himself up and not be afraid. And it made me want to be around him even more. So Marie, in this in this episode, we're, we're focusing a little bit on the idea that we hear how someone dies and then phew, we have a huge picture 
usually in our mind of like what it meant about that person. What does it mean about their family and deaths that come with a lot of stigma, like suicide, murder, overdose, those seem to come with even more, um, quick to fit assumptions. So I'm curious with this experience of, of Jonathan dying of an overdose, how has that changed what you think and feel when you maybe read a story in the newspaper or hear something on the radio? In my mind, um, I think prior to Jonathan passing away, I felt that addiction had a face. You knew what it looked like. Um, you've seen it on in movies. You hear about it in songs. You make these assumptions for sure. You think you can pinpoint it. And in Jonathan's case, it wasn't it wasn't like that in the least bit. He was completely functioning, going to work, paid the bills, did everything that you would think, quote unquote, someone who is not struggling should be doing. I think it has helped me be a heck of a lot more compassionate and a lot more understanding and has drawn me to want to help a lot more and be part of the movement to help people who aren't able to tell their story. I struggle with hearing, you know, that person looks like a druggie or, you know, that person is just abusing drugs and they just deserve it. Um, and there will be times where I will pull somebody aside and say, let me, let me tell you about how I felt when you said that. Really difficult to not want to scream it on the top of the roof at all times because I can't be everybody's educator at the end of the day. But if I can impact one person and just have them understand that that word is offensive. These are people and their their lives matter. And just because they fell in hard times or are using or struggling right now does not mean they're not human beings and we should not be compassionate and try to help. And then when, when he died, how did people respond to you about the fact that he died of an overdose? I think initially I received a lot of different responses from his family. Um, I, they basically told me that they knew this was going to happen. They knew about his past and they knew that he was still struggling and they knew that one day that he would be found like this, which was so upsetting um, and disappointing because I just felt like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you let me know that you were concerned? I could have done something. And then there was another part where my family just didn't talk about it. They knew what it was. I was in denial and they just wanted me to pick myself up, dust myself off and move on with my life and not really talk about how I felt about his addiction or how he died or the grief behind it. They just wanted me to like, okay, he died. He made this choice. He made a poor choice. And now that those are the consequences that happened. Now you need to get yourself together and move on because he didn't care enough about you to not do these things. Um, so that was really hard. Like really pragmatic, but then also pretty judgmental towards him. Yes. There was you know, a handful of people that were incredibly angry with him. Of course, I was very angry as well. And my emotions, you know, were up and down. One day I was angry. The next day I was sad. Um, the next day I was trying to piece it all together and figure out where it went wrong. It was, I went through all those stages of confusion of what happened and being around 
other people that were feeding me that anger was not the right fit. And then I had friends that I feel like they thought, well, if he was using, Marie must have been using. And there was a lot of people that I had to cut out of my life that just didn't quite understand how to support me. I had friends tell me, well, he's, he's happy now, Marie. He's not struggling. And that was like a dagger in the heart. What would you say back when people said that? I think at that point I was so outside of my body. I spent months just sobbing and not being able to communicate how I felt. I'd lash out a lot. I would do a lot of um, yelling and screaming at people. And And that's not just because you're from New York. Not just because I'm from New York, (laughs) but because I just felt like they were saying that he was better off now. And I'm like, no, I don't think so, guys. If he was here, we could have, like, you know, I could have helped him. I could have loved him enough. Maybe I didn't love him enough. It would just, it messed with my mind. It was a bit overwhelming. So in addition to other people having thoughts and opinions and judgments, there's also that sense of, you know, this was your husband. You didn't know the, like, if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, seeing like guilt and regret, all that I imagine is a huge part of this experience. What, how did that play out for you and how have you carried that? I think, um, the first year was the toughest. I played back every single conversation we ever had and thought to myself, was he trying to tell me that he had a problem here? Or was he trying to subconsciously tell me something here? Also played back every time I told him no, he would say, you know, come out, come meet me, let's go do this. And I'd be like, no, I'm really tired, I don't want to. And being so angry at myself for saying no. Why didn't I just do it? He wanted to hang out with me. We could have built more memories. How could you have been so selfish? Other people that I've talked to that have lost someone in a similar um, way, you just feel like you should have known better, that you could have done something differently. You could have said something that may have changed the entire course of those couple of days that I wasn't with him. It's been a really, really hard road trying to navigate through the fact that regardless of where I was or if I said something differently or if I approached him differently, it wouldn't have made a difference. It hurt me that he didn't feel comfortable enough to even confide in me. So that was really tough because I thought we had this really connected bond where he could say anything to me and asking myself, why didn't he feel comfortable enough? Did he not love me? Um, And then part of me thought, was this just a mirage? Was our relationship even real? Because he was living this double life that I wasn't aware of, what part of it was real? Was the me and him part real or was him using and hiding it real? Yeah, it calls into question everything, like your judgment, your ability to assess what's happening, the reality of that relationship, the connection. As we had in, like, you're coming up on almost three years since Jonathan died, how how do you sit with those questions now and those doubts? I have little spurts here and there um, where something will come up and I'll have a memory um, trigger a feeling or an emotion and it's still very hard 
but I, I know ultimately that there's nothing I could have done. This was his path and this was my path. And we were meant to be together. We were meant to have that experience together. And in life and in death, Jonathan has helped me immensely. I know I allow myself to feel sad and have those emotions, but ultimately I know that there was nothing I could have done. Interesting too, that having that sense of certainty that there wasn't anything you could have done to change the outcome maybe makes it easier to carry some of those really painful emotions and questions, but doesn't completely erase them that you still carry those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it definitely has gotten better. But there are days and there are moments where I hear a song or I look at a picture or I get a flashback of like a moment that we shared together. And yeah, it's, it's still very heartbreaking. But I cherish those moments at the same time because it makes me feel like he's still close. Yeah, it seems like that can be a shift for a lot of people where at the beginning, like right after someone dies, sometimes how they died Maybe if they found the person the way you did, like the imagery eclipses the memories of like loving positive times together. And then even when those memories start to come back or have more space for them, they're so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. that it's like push them away. And then as time goes on, maybe there's more access to those memories and then it's more of a grasping for them to stay connected. Definitely. I think at this point I'm, I'm grasping, I'm trying my hardest to keep them as close to me as possible. And everything I do every single day is in memory of him. And I feel that to the core of my being. Um, I moved across the country, yes, for me, but a lot of it was driven by him. Yeah, let's talk a little about, like, you, I mean, you came home, you found Jonathan had died, you left that apartment, you didn't go back again, right, until everything was cleared out. And then you changed your whole life. Talk a little bit about like what, what happened. Going back to the apartment and finding him and just seeing our apartment in the state that it was in, I just, I, I lost all attachment to anything that was in there. I knew he wasn't there. I just kind of shut down and, and, you know, beg and pleaded my family to like, didn't beg, but I asked them to just please clear out the entire apartment. I don't want to go back in there until everything's empty. None of it matters anymore because Jonathan, Jonathan's not here. Uh, my life is over. I don't need all these belongings. I moved into my mother's house for a while to figure out where I'm supposed to go from here found that to be incredibly challenging and just knew in my soul that I could not continue to live the life that I was living without him there. I was never going to heal or be able to mourn in that environment. So I just basically applied to every job underneath the sun, Colorado, Montana, Oregon, California, just anywhere that was so far removed from the life that I had with him or we wanted to have or just had to get away. Um, And I ended up having this opportunity given to me in Oregon and Portland. And I was completely shocked that they gave me the job. 
they literally talked to me on um, Skype and it was an amazing interview. I absolutely loved my future boss and she was like, okay, so when are you moving? And I'm like, okay, I'll be there in two weeks. I did not think it was going to be that easy. Prior to that, I've applied to many jobs across the country and it wasn't easy. So divine intervention for sure played into it. Um, Does that feel like one of those times that Jonathan was 100%. There? 100%. I had um, a ticket to Peru. I was going to go to South America and disappear in South America and never come back ever again. And then this opportunity came up and I basically asked him and I said, what do you think I should do? Where do you think I should go? Went to sleep. I don't know if the dream happened that night or a couple days after. Um, but he was like, go north. Don't go south. Go north. So I was like, done. I'm going north. I'm moving to Oregon and see what happens. I think at that point, I just didn't care, which sounds terrible. Um, it seems like you were just totally untethered. Yep. All options were an option. Yep. Yep. And I just, I just said, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I have this amazing experience. I get to see some beautiful mountains and be out in the woods a little bit, even though Portland has barely any woods. Um, and that, that was shocking to me when I got here. I was like, come on, are you serious? Downtown? This is where I work? I left the city for another city? Awesome. But it was the best decision I ever made. And everything that has happened since I've gotten here has been cosmic in my mind. I think he has helped me in this journey, I know he has supported me along the way. And every time I'm about to give in, another opportunity comes up that keeps me here and keeps me grounded. Um, Do you keep asking him for advice and input? Absolutely. It's bizarre, but I feel like he gives me those answers all the time. I, when I was in New York, I never hiked. I never enjoyed the outdoors. I enjoyed looking at it from my car window, <laughs> but I never like got out and actually you know, walked in the dirt, walked in the dirt and got dirty and slept underneath the stars. Like it wasn't a thing. I lived in Brooklyn. I lived in the city. He gave me the strength, did all these crazy things that I thought I would never do. Uh, went on these amazing trips, amazing hikes and, and saw this natural beauty and felt closer to him here than I did in Long Island or in New York. And I'd go home often and I'd go home and I'm like, he's not here. He's totally not here anymore. Mm. Our stuff is here and our friends and our family's here, but he's back where I live. That's my, that's my home and he's with me there. And it's not someplace you ever traveled together or not someplace he ever went. Nope. I never uh, been to Oregon. I never been to Portland. I just looked at pictures and I said, Ooh, that looks nice. I, that looks like a great place to live. We'll see what happens. What are some words you would use to describe you know, a lot of people talk about their lives being split into before the death and after the death as two, two totally different chapters. How would you, what are some words you would use to describe yourself like before Jonathan died and words you would use to describe yourself now, three years later? Before I was really structured, very controlling over my path and we have to open a joint savings account and save all our money because we're going to buy a house and we're going to have kids and like super regimented felt like the social pressures of having to look a certain way and act a certain way. And after I got rid of everything, like everything that was 
holding me back or making me feel like I wasn't good enough or... So you got rid of like items and beliefs. I got rid of tons of items and tons of beliefs. So now I just, I enjoy life differently. I don't look, I'm not like starving for things to do. I feel like I can really embrace like the simple things and appreciate the simple things. Just having a really good conversation with somebody, um, getting lost somewhere, getting in my car and just driving for like four or five hours. Not um, something you would do in New York City. Yeah, not what I would do in New York City. In New York City, I would be freaking out because I couldn't find a parking spot. <laughs> then and now, I'm a completely different person. Um, and bizarrely, I'm thankful for this experience, even though it has been the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my entire life, losing the love of my life, losing my best friend, and being completely, sh- you know stripped of everything that I thought would make me happy or was important to me in retrospect is the best thing that's ever happened to me because I feel like I am living now before I wasn't living an authentic life. Now I can say, these are the things that I love to do. This is what makes me happy. Where before I was, I was trying to always keep up. Yeah. So this devastating loss which basically blew up your whole world seems like in the aftermath the direction of your gaze turned inward to to unearth like what's really true for me since I don't have this exterior life that I loved so much exactly he brought a lot of joy and peace into my life he was the the sunshine in my dark world of trying to be somebody I wasn't. And it was amazing and it was beautiful. And he helped me tremendously to open my eyes to just the simple scraping the surface of like simplistic living and just knowing that you don't need a lot, but if you have each other, that's all, that's all that matters at the end of the day. So when I lost that, it really opened my eyes to, like you said, to what was important to me. What made me happy? Jonathan made me happy. He's no longer here. So what is going to propel me forward? People um, always say this to me, and I love it, and I appreciate it. Um, But at the same time, it bothers me a little bit. But you're so strong. We're so impressed by you, Marie. We can't believe you moved across the country and did this by yourself. And in my mind, I didn't have a choice. I had two options. I could have laid down and not been able to get out of it, but I had to keep going. And 50% of it was me because I'm a headstrong woman and I don't take no for an answer and I, and I just do things. Uh, but a big part of it was, you know, I wanted to do it for him. I wanted to do it in remembrance of him. I wanted to, I wanted to make him proud because I know he was looking down on me and come on, Marie, you know you can do this. Um, so I know I know he's incredibly proud of me, like shockingly proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so big part of it is, is definitely for him. It sounds like your experience is you weren't alone in making these dramatic changes in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I definitely had my supporters back at home in the physical 
But in the spiritual, I, I know he helped me make every decision and will for the rest of my life. He has a very strong spirit, and I know that he's around me all the time. Well, Marie, I'm so grateful that you came in to have this conversation with me and to learn a little bit more about Jonathan and learn a lot more about you and your process. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing experience. And for everyone out there, thank you for being part of our listening community. If you're new to our show, we've got a lot of episodes. This one's episode 111. Somehow that seems like a special number. That is a special number. I love it. So there's a lot of listening you can do. We're able to do this show because of generous contributions from the community. So if you'd like to be part of that support, you can go to our website, dougy.org forward slash grief out loud and just click the donate button. No pressure. You can keep on listening even if you never contribute, but if you feel drawn to, we would love to have your support. So thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us again next time. 